Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created, and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 239. Today, I'm joined by Eddie Claypool to talk about finding DIY bow hunting success and killing big deer. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine here in these dog days of summer. Um, I actually had a pretty good deer week uh, this past week. Was able to check out a few cameras in uh, some areas that I had scouted this past winter. I was really kind of unsure of what was going to maybe be popping in those areas. And, and, And I'll just put it this way, that I was pleasantly surprised with the talent that showed up and the fact that some of these places, you know, Uh, I wasn't sure I was even going to find deer, uh, so to speak. So the fact that there were deer on camera and a couple really nice bucks um, gives me some hope or some promise, at least for the fall. We know, of course, that there's going to be a shift that happens and stuff like that. But um, in this particular piece, there's a in one of the areas specifically, there is a crop of really good deer that are kind of hanging around there. And so I, I would think that one or two of them may stay in the uh, in the general area as we hit the uh, as we hit the fall shift. 
Uh, but that still remains to be seen. So that, you know, that essentially means I'm going to be doing a little bit of traveling here in PA to uh, hunt an area that I didn't really anticipate hunting this, uh, this year, just didn't think I was going to have enough Intel to, to, to get much accomplished, but seems to be, you know, my, my motto kind of always is, is that I'll go wherever the, wherever the deer are, wherever the better deer are. And right now that's proven out to be the spot or the area and, and locally, um, still haven't checked cameras yet. Uh, probably two to three weeks out from checking those. And then we'll see what kind of talent we have, uh, have in this general area. But, you know, velvet season is certainly here and, and velvet's pop. And hopefully I'll be able to get out and do a little bit of glassing. And speaking of velvet, our buddies over at Exodus Outdoor Gear are kicking off their velvet fest. That's, of course, the official start to deer season for me. They're running from July 21st through August 11th. They'll have some awesome prizes for, you know, any of us that are using the hashtag velvet fest in social media. So you can share your whitetail adventures and get yourself in the running for some for some killer prizes. And if you're in the market for a trail camera, if you need a few to set out still, you know, Velvet Fest is the perfect time to, to pick those up. They'll be sending out some exclusive savings through their email newsletter uh, throughout the campaign. So you'll want to head over to XSOutdoorGear.com and sign up for their, their newsletter. The other cool thing is, too, is every single camera comes with a random prize that you'll have to scratch off to reveal the prize once you once you receive your your, your package. I know just from talking to my buddies over there, they got some huge deals that you're not going to want to miss out on. So make sure you take full advantage of that. And then to sweeten the pot even more, every single uh, order offers everyone the chance to receive a limited edition hashtag Velvet Fest laser engraved camera. And if you are the lucky recipient of said camera, you'll receive $1,000 gift card from Exodus. That's right. A big G note from the fellas at Exodus. There's a lot going on with this campaign. Like I mentioned, so you're going to want to sign up for the newsletter. So you don't miss anything. That's at exodusoutdoorgear.com. So make sure you head over there and get familiar with all their information. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Exodus, which I'd find it hard pressed that you guys aren't, if you listen to this show for any length of time over the last six years, my boys over there have consistently shown they build quality trail cameras and that flat out work. And of course the best trail camera warranty policy period bar none. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. Yep. That's right. You heard it correctly. Five years, literally half a decade. You're covered by the Exodus five-year warranty, but more than likely you won't need it because these cameras are built to last. So be sure to take advantage or take part of the velvet <clears throat> hashtag velvet fest celebration. Be sure to tag me and Exodus in any of your pictures. Cause I'd like to check out what you guys have going on throughout this summer. One last piece of housekeeping before we jump into today's show is you shouldn't be drinking shitty coffee while you're out hunting this year. So make sure you head over to skullbrewcoffee.com. They have those travel packs, pour over packs where you, they're super small, com compartmentalized. You open it up, stick it over whatever cup you're using. You hit the jet boil, boil some water, get some hot water, dump it in. Voila, voila. You have killer coffee. No more of that instant crap while you're out hunting that gives you the rot gut. So head over to skullbrewcoffee.com dot com and use the promo code tfts21 to get yourself some savings and so with that we will jump into today's show have a super cool show for you guys today have on you know a guy that needs very little to no introduction so mr eddie claypool uh, eddie is a well-accomplished outdoor writer he's probably i would i would say you'd be hard-pressed to find a more successful diy bow hunter of any species Eddie's been getting it done since like the, I think 1980, I think he said was his first out of state DIY hunt and his record, you know, his track record for success is just unbelievable. Whether it's on Magnum elk, whether it's on killing big deer in the plains and hunting, hunting that plains country where there's not a lot of trees and not, you know, just a vast sea of, of CRP. Um, Eddie was gracious, <clears throat> gracious enough to come on the show 
and cut it up with me for a while. And he's just truly one of the most genuine and down to earth folks that I think I've ever, that I've ever had the opportunity to talk to and his ability and how he kind of thinks through things is just, is, is just next level. Um, and he doesn't need any, any endorsement for me for that. That's for, that's for sure. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today, I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited uh, to have the guest that I have on the line with me today. Um, I am speaking with a gentleman who has been a, a writer for a number of outdoor publications for a bunch of years, super experienced DIY bow hunter, you know, everything from whitetails to, to Western big game, you name it, he's probably chased it and has it, has it on a wall somewhere. But I'm talking to none other than Mr. Eddie Claypool. How are you doing this evening? Very well, thanks. Nice to talk to you, and hope you can get a tidbit or two of wisdom out of this old redneck. <laughs> well, I have a I have a feeling we're gonna get a we're gonna get more than a bit bit or two. Uh, you know, from the reading that I've done of you and I've listened to you in the past, it's just uh, you know there's always diff- different nuggets that I end up picking up from you. Di- you know, at different times that I've that I've listened to or, or have read your content. So I don't think we're gonna have a problem picking up uh, picking up some tidbits from you. All right. All right. So first, man, I know a lot of folks out there listening, you know, have probably, whether they know it or not, they've they've probably read something by you or have seen something from you, whether they recognize it or not. But just so folks out there have a little bit of a sense of of who you are and where you're from, just, you know, give me a little bit of background about you, where you're from, what you do for a living and, and who Eddie Claypool is. Well, I live here in the hills of Northeast Oklahoma, kind of rural America, and I grew up just common as they come. I likened my lifestyle to Andy and Opie off the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> um, my dad was justice of peace of a little town and I was the bar headed town terror. But, uh, when I got a little older and got out of school, I was looking for, you know, my direction and dad put me to work in the construction field. And, uh, I got stuck there and stayed there all my days. I was a union pipe fitter and, uh, as I got older and really, really started hunting hard and traveling a lot, I realized I couldn't probably ever have a better occupation because you can work when you want and get off when you want, work as many hours as you want when you do work. So that's one of the reasons I stayed at it all my days. And I recently retired from it. And uh, so, you know, I started bow hunting back in my early teens around here local and I didn't have much luck. I didn't have any mentors to teach me much. I, it was all you know, the school of hard knocks for me, but that's how you learn the best is on your own, you know. That's right. And uh, when, I, when I finally got in my early 20s, I had started heading out west. I'd made my first trips out there, and I just loaded my old truck up. I, I didn't know literally straight up from sideways about what I was doing and <laughs> went out west and just tackled those mountains with a fervor and uh, fell in love with them. And decided that that was my new passion in life was the high country and elk and mule deer. And from that day on in 1980, up until here recently, I have just ate, slept, lived and breathed Western stuff. Uh, I am a hardcore whitetail guy because, you know, I come from whitetail country and I love to hunt them. But I've got to admit, my passion has been Western game, really, especially elk. I just... They are what fueled my fire for 40 years. And uh, so, you know, when you get the passion inside you, like I've had literally to the point of, you know, probably maybe an addiction to the Mm -hmm. point of 
psychopathic, literally. <laughs> I mean, uh, like, a, I don't know. I mean, people say I'm crazy, and I probably am. But um, when you have it that way, you can accomplish anything you want. Um, you yeah. can you can learn to you can learn to be an excellent Western do-it-yourself bow hunter. You just got to make your lifestyle where you can put the kind of time and effort in that I did, and that's the biggest hurdle that most people can't produce is the time, along with the passion to put in the effort. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. Uh, t- I totally hear so, that. There's there's a couple things I want to unpack there real real quick. One was, uh-huh. you know, you, you you kind of explained that you know you came from a real rural area, the Opie and Andy kind of you know uh, upbringing or right. st- lifestyle, right? What was the thing right. that kind of got you out of your comfort zone and pushed you west, right? Because I think that right some people, even though they have it in their mind that it's something they might want to do one day. They always kind yeah. of let that, well, that's just something that's out of my reach kind of mentality right. hold them right. back. And especially for people, yeah. I come from a real rural town in Pennsylvania too. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of right. that kind of mentality. So right. what was it that catapulted you to say, you know what, I'm just going to go do this? Kind of in two ways. One, the biggest probably was basically I'm an only child. I grew up on my own. I've never been scared of. I've had to do everything on my own. I, I mean, play with myself, right. <laughs> not, you know, hold it. I better rephrase that. But anyway, <laughs> I had to entertain myself. But anyway, I mean, I was never bashful about tackling anything. I had a very adventuresome spirit in me as a young man. That's important because you've got to be able to dive in head first and see how deep the water is, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when I got about, oh, around graduation age or a little shortly thereafter i read an issue of bowhunter magazine one time way back there and i don't even remember who wrote the story it was some rather random fella that had killed some elk with a bow and i mean back in my day there was nothing video there was no video there was no you know um the only thing that was out there was hunting uh, just a few hunting magazines you know Mm -hmm. and uh I read an article about going bow hunting in New Mexico, and I had went to Colorado as a young man with my family on some vacation, so I had a little bit of the ice broke there as far as how to, it's not that far to get from my house to Colorado, you know. Yeah. So I just, you know, it was a matter of a whole bunch of things coming together, an adventuresome spirit, a desire to up the bow hunting. Um, I mean, I'd hunted whitetails, hadn't been real real good at it, had not mastered whitetails at all. But once I got out there that first trip and got in that alpine country, there was something about that environment, that hmm. living on top of the world by yourself in, in danger, fighting Mother Nature constantly. It's a struggle that nothing you will do in your life compares to as far as the mental and physical strain and and challenge i just fell in love with it it was just what i was made for it felt to me like my calling mm-hmm. and so there was a whole lot of things had to come together um in me probably to get me to become you know the guy that i have grown into right now can you i'm sure that that first trip out west was 
really impactful probably has a pretty you probably have a pretty strong memory of it is i guess what i'm trying to say right right you know absolutely you know tell me a little bit about that first trip because that was really okay it, it seems very much like a seminal moment for you you, you know you went out it on was. your own and you you took on this yeah. challenge and even kind of somewhat not even knowing what you're getting into which is always kind of the right. extra scary part like not only are you doing something that's different and foreign but you're doing it in an area that's unforgiving absolutely and you know, if you if you literally had a documentary of my first trip, and a person could sit down and watch it, they would just shake their head. They literally, you wouldn't even be able to talk. You'd be like, "That that was his first trip. Any moron could do that." Because I'm not kidding you. You talk about Gomer goes to town. When I headed to the hills the first time, I had a a backpack, um, cheapo depot backpack a pair of binoculars that only worked on one side one <laughs> eyepiece one side didn't even work i had no hunting clothes basically i hunted in blue jeans and red wing work boots i uh, i lived out of an ice chest in the back of my truck slept in the bed of my truck when i wasn't in the woods which was 90 percent of the time i i was literally so primitive that that ain't even the beginnings of it. And and I knew literally nothing about where I was going. I just drove up there, started driving through country. And when I spotted something that caught my eye, I'm liable to park there, jump out, beat the you know, place down for a day or two, jump in the truck, move another. I mean, I was just like, young man goes west. You know, he's, yeah. you can't get enough of it, but you don't know what you're doing. And by the end of the second week of my outing, now mind you, two weeks, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm up there goofing. I haven't accomplished anything, but I was, um, I had parked on the side of the road up at the high country and spent the night. And I got up that morning, was standing there right after daylight, looking up on the mountains above me and spotted a whole bunch of little specks up there above the timber line. About six hours later, I'd loaded a backpack, climbed 3,000 vertical feet up to those specks. And found them to be a herd of about 100 to 125 elk. Jeez. And that was that's what it took for me to first get into elk the first time. It took two weeks. I didn't even know where they lived. I literally didn't know if they lived in the desert hardly or up at Alpine. You know what I mean? Right, right. And uh, so, I mean, I had a long learning curve that first year. Come home from that trip. Didn't even fire an arrow at nothing. Didn't get near anything, really. Crawled up and boogered a few elk come back was so distraught and so invigorated that within one week was back up there <laughs> went back stayed the last two weeks of the season didn't get an elk didn't kill an elk my first year and, and was up there four weeks total <laughs> so i mean i don't have a miracle story the way i started i started about as common as they come but with the passion i had at the end of that first year, especially not filling a tag, I said that I'm going to do this. I am going to do this. Went back the next year in 81 the first time and uh, killed my first elk by myself up at Timberline. And it's, it's all been <laughs> downhill ever since. Right. Yeah, anyway. no, I hear you. It's. I think that's the one thing that I appreciate you know, most about your, your story and how you've kind of come to be you know who you are and who people you know how right. people know you is right the, the fact that it was self-made and it is diy and it's you know right. it's it's right. hunts that anybody can go do you know and that's it the is. part 
Yeah, Again, and that's the, that's the part that I love about it, and that's kind of what you know inspired uh-huh. me to really start doing right. more traveling and, and hunting different places, and you know, right. it, it helps me. You know, that experience of hunting different places. I try to go somewhere new every year, and a lot of times I, I don't True. even get a chance to scout True. it. I just show up and hunt it, you know, for a week or two weeks or whatever. Right. And it helps make right. me a better hunter, I feel, because I'm having to always process things that I'm seeing on, on the fly, yep. you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Now, granted, I would love to have some time to scout. A lot of times it'd be helpful, for sure. <laughs> right. You know, but, right. yeah. um, you know, it's... Uh, I'll take what I can get because I'm chasing, I'm chasing experiences. You know, that's what I'm doing is chasing experiences. Um, But the one thing I want to kind of circle back to here is, you know, you Uh mentioned lifestyle at one point. And Uh I think that Uh that's one of the interesting things where it's like you prioritized hunting as one of the things in your life that you wanted to do, you know, above a lot of other things. And I've heard you kind of talk about it before. You really kind of built your life around to be able to hunt as much as you want to like you had a purpose built life yeah. that would allow you to yeah. do the things you want to do can you talk to me a little bit about how you how you set that up or how you kind of accomplished that you know i don't know where i fit into this category of humanity and normal especially but i just know <laughs> my experience and, and from the moment i went out there and did that i had a passion that i don't know even know how to explain it it was going to happen one way or the other and so I just immediately started improvising every day of my life for the next quite a few years to get things. I mean, at age 20, you know, you're, you're just married with children. You're just getting going and there's so many things to juggle, but I always kept the vision basically of the beginning of elk season in Colorado in my mind. And I worked toward that all year. I rat hold money. I worked extra jobs. If I needed a pair of shoes, you know, I'd go haul hay a day and get the money and buy them if I needed a uh, backpacking uh, one-man tent. Man, you know, I mean, I remember the days when something like that was a year-long process for me to be able to get it, to purchase Mm -hmm. it. It was a major uh, drain on the family if I took a $100 bill and did something. We were living from Friday to Friday paychecks, you know. Yeah. And – I, I I always tried to be a good family man, but I don't know if I was or not. Many people said I was not. Um, many people said I was. Um, we all know how that goes with life. Uh, <laughs> right. You're going to have your haters and you're going to have the people that see the reality. I, you know, I spent a lot of time with my family. I took them up there with me unbelievable amounts of time and introduced them to all that stuff. Some, you know, some liked, some didn't, but. I just had a way of working all year and working extra and figuring out how to manage my occupation to where I would be on jobs that would be working maybe seven days a week sometimes for a month or two for 12 hours a day. And I would pay my house payment two months ahead of time so that I didn't have to make a house payment for the month of September and November. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I often run right straight home from a hunt in Colorado that would be five weeks long get home and the next day be back on a seven day a week, 12 hour a day job, work it till November one, get amazingly laid off mm-hmm. and uh, then be off all the month in November to hunt. So, I mean, it was just a matter of scrapping in every direction I could to keep the ball rolling called, you know, married with children. And, right. uh, and yet being able to supply, I mean, since I've been about 20, 
the past 40 some years, I have only worked a job one fall autumn in my entire life. Wow. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. That's pretty that's pretty that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I literally worked, you know, August through December one year. I've never worked August through December other than that one year in forty some years. So right. how many people can do that? Not very many, if any. Yeah. You know, it takes you know, it's, it's really the life of a single young man. Um, if you're going to do it, you need to get out of high school, go tackle it, learn it, do it, and then maybe wait, get married later in life. And when you're ready, you've got a lot of that out of your system, maybe. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, it, it, it totally you makes know? sense. But there's something you said in there that makes even more sense to me, and that was the word discipline. And it's and, right, and it's right. funny because I've heard that in different ways. Like Don, I don't know if you know Don Higgins or not, but Don is a guy yeah. who, who I've talked about. You know, he's right. had, I've had him on the show, and yeah. he's talked about discipline, and and that's one of the reasons right. why Don kills a lot of big deer is like he's very disciplined in right. his approach to killing them. And it can also be said uh-huh. the same in being able to go hunt the ways you want to hunt, the types of hunts you want to have. You have to be disciplined in being able to set them up and take care of your priorities. You know, be disciplined in yeah. that approach. So whenever it comes time to go do the hunt or the thing, whatever it is that you want to do that you're set up to do that. So whenever you're doing it, when you're doing the thing you love to do, you're focused on that and you're not thinking about, I need to get back home to make this payment or I got to go do this or whatever the case is. Yeah. I, I, I was really as an only child, I grew up taking care of my own business and dotting every I and crossing every T because I learned early on in life, if you're not disciplined and if you don't make things happen, I mean, nothing's going to, it's just, life's going to consume you. It's going to eat you up. I've been around so many people. I just call them whatevers. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just whatevers. I'm not far opposite end of that. I'm a psychotic, uh, disciplined, mentally and physically um, disciplined. And that's what it takes. And I've sent so many people out West on my type of hunting. And there isn't one in 10 of them, literally, that ever stick to it. Um, Mm -hmm. They just, you know, they read it. It's a fantasy to them. I tell them what they're getting into. They do not believe me. They go try it, and it ends up being not a good experience for them, and they give it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's only the certain few, and you'll know if you try it. When you get done with it, you'll know whether you're for it or not. Yeah. That's actually how I made one of my best hunting buddies. Uh, we went on a – we scouted okay. this one piece together in, in a rugged piece of country, and, uh, and it was – middle of the summer just ridiculously hot like 90 some degrees we were a tent camping and uh it's right. a place it's a big woods place and low deer density but there's really good deer there and 
Um, you mm-hmm. know, he, he'd hunted it before and this was the first time we ever scouted or anything together. So we just met and, uh, right. and he kept telling me, he's like, Hey, you know, there's not a lot of deer, you know, it's, you're either going to see like a giant or you might not see anything for 10 days. That's just kind of how this place works, right. you know? And, uh, right. and I was like, I'm okay. I'll, let's do it. Let's do it. And he kept telling me all leading up to it, how, how hard it is. Right. And, uh, yeah, right. so we went and we went and we did the hunt. I hunted dark to dark for 10 days straight. I saw three deer in 10 days. And by the end of wow. it, he, he looked at me, he was like, all right. He's like, you're as crazy as I am. He's like, I think we can hunt together. Yeah. You know, so there you it, go. Yeah. it was, it was yeah. at that point it, it, because we have this saying, it's like, we will see people at camp there, you know, every year, but we'll never see the same group of people twice. Right. You know? I, well, you can imagine with me being 62 now and starting it, you know, shortly after 18 and spending, you know, tens of thousands of hours out West. I mean, I, I've averaged between a month and two months of unbroken time out West every year, hmm. how many different people I've went through as hunting buddies trying to, you know, find somebody that I could have a good time with. And in, in 40 some years, I've only run across two, yeah. only two that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it is. They like it. They're having fun at it. It doesn't get too hard for them. And it's all a smile, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just not, I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's like only certain people are going to be, and I, I, I couldn't understand it all my life because I thought everybody was like me. And I was like, well, how come you don't measure up? If Well, they're not like you. Um, just like that guy and you there, you two were probably two out of 100 people that would be met in the deer woods. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, you know, the whole package comes in, in minute amounts. And if it, if everybody was like that, there wouldn't be anything left out there to hunt. Everybody would wipe it all out all the time because everybody would be the world-class hardcore hunter of all time, right? Right. You know, and that's that's not good. Um, we, we just, uh, it's like nobody could be Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan, you know. And, uh, <laughs> that's a great way. You know, that's a great way to put it. Not that I'm Michael Jordan. I, I try, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I got the, I got, I got the effort. Exactly. We, I can put together a number of qualities of a world-class bow hunter. I mean, I, I can name 10 of them and you could probably go through a hundred guys and they might have four or five or six of those, but to get all 10 of those things and, yeah. and, discipline um is one of the biggest ones and that means not only you know it means financial that means physical that means mental and and then you've got to also have some you know savvy you've got to build it up over time you can't read about it you can't watch it on tv and go out there and expect to do it um successfully at a hardcore do it yourself level nothing but the school of hard knocks will get you through that yeah and i I think there's also a point in especially that type of hunting where you almost have to go out and do it on your own at least once and prove it to yourself once you know at least right that that, it was that for me you know and i went to you know i drew an iowa tag one year and i went out and was hunting you know all public went to a place i'd never never been before and you know had two weeks and you know, and it wasn't like, you know, oh, well, was me. I was hunting Iowa. It's a target rich environment. Sure. But right, I had, right. A, there was a mental challenge that I had because I literally missed the same big deer twice on day six. And then wow. again, on like day 10, I caught back up to him. I missed oh. him and I had four total encounters with him and I just couldn't get him stuck. And most people probably would have uh, yeah. packed it in at that point, you know? Um, right. And right. then I just kept grinding through and I ended up shooting, I ended up killing a good buck on, at 3 30 p.m on the last day of the hunt on the 16th day 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, when you tell stories like that, it brings back so many memories of, you know, I'm going to say that 10% of, of my 100% of outdoor bow hunting experiences, 10% of them are those kills the last day, the last evening. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, them's the ones you remember for the rest of your life. Oh. The satisfaction from that stuff. I mean, if you got the passion, the self induced satisfaction from that is what you live for it's your mm-hmm. drug it's your high to have done the whole nine yards and pull it out in the bottom of the ninth you know mm-hmm. yeah because that was that was the first time i went out of state diy on my own wow you know like wow. to where it's like i didn't you know i'd gone on other out of state trips out of state hunts and stuff like that right. but it was always with like a right. friend a buddy or whatever you know we would always go yeah. together we'd hunt different places but we you know always had like a camp, a camp buddy that was the first one uh-huh. where I was staying by myself, you know, right. free, free, you know, freestyle hunting a piece I'd never been on before, reading signs, right. chasing deer from dark to dark every day, you know, and then finally on the sixteenth day, you know, I had two misses, and then finally on the sixteenth day, I screwed up an opportunity on one that was probably 180 inches in a draw on a CRP field, uh, you know, so there was plenty uh, of like screwing stuff up to where, you know, it was just one of those things where. You know, I guess a little bit that I proved to myself that I had the mental makeup to just kind of grind through it and get it, you know. Right. Um, And it was from that point on where I was like, all right, I can go do whatever hunt now. Like it might be more physically taxing. It might, you know, whatever the case is, but nothing's going to be as challenging as grinding 16 days, missing deer and at moments doubting whether or not you even want to be there. You know, and so right, right. It, it was yeah. the fact that I could get through that. I was like, you know what? I can go do whatever hunt now. I'm not worried about it. Let's just go wherever yep. you want to go. Just drop a pin on a map and I'll go. <laughs> yeah, know, that was kind of well, my, my thinking. You, there, it's hard to make whitetail hunting hard, but you can do it. Those type of trips like that, that's yeah. hard. But um, when you go to the alpine wilderness country mm-hmm. of the West, the ruggedest 12,000 foot wilderness and spend five weeks in it and gut through that yeah. and learn to love it you come home and it, i i didn't understand this till i did it but it made me to where the absolute nightmarish of whitetail hunts i've ever been on in my life are are candy or mm-hmm. panty waste stuff anymore do you know what i mean yeah no um, I, I i totally I mean, agree with you because i don't know that i could have i don't know that i would have been able to grind through that hunt if I hadn't done a Western two week Western in in the mountains of Montana for, you know, where it's like one day it was 90, the next day it was 32 with a foot of snow, like, right. You know, hiking 15 miles, you know, it, it it was that experience that was probably the catalyst for me to say, Hey, you can take on challenging hunts. Like, just go do it. Like this was, it's probably not going to be any worse than this, (laughs) you know? No, no, no. I mean, I admire all Western bow hunters and I admire Eastern whitetail guys. They've all got their own hardcore qualities. And some of them are, you know, unique to just that perspective. I've tried to live both of them and get in the middle somewhere there because, I mean, I love whitetail hunting. It's mm-hmm. it's it's my off-season time after I've spent two months out west busting my guts out. I, I mean, it's nothing for me to get up at 330 I've had days where I've got up at three o'clock, drove out two and a half hours in the dark, parked, unload the backpack with my tree stand, all my accessories in it, lunch, everything I carry, 35 pound pack with my bow, hike an hour in the dark 
<laughs> an hour, we're talking two miles, across the prairie, unbroken wilderness prairie, no roads, nothing, have to use a GPS to find my tree stand in the dark across <laughs> the prairie. You can't walk two miles across the prairie in the dark and not get lost. You will not come. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, the prairie is undulating and rolling, and you're not going to end up two miles over there where you want to be. Get in that tree before shooting light, set till after shooting light, get down and drive home two and a half hours, and think it was a, a fun day. <laughs> I know. I know. That's, uh, you know? Think, yeah, because I mean, I, I, to me, that sounds like great fun, you know, but there are definitely people out yeah. there that look at you well, and be like, man, you are, you are crazy, you know? You're out of your mind. Yeah. You know, they, they want the uh, leisurely um, weekend warrior hunts, and I'm all mm-hmm. for it. I, I'm getting to the point. I'm finally, for the first time in my life, starting to understand those people because, you know, I mean, you got to face it. When you get old, things are going to change. I mm-hmm. didn't think I would change as much as I have, but I, I'm firmly entrenched <laughs> in the, the low testosterone age and all right. that junk that goes on when you get older, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm starting starting to ease up and you know, yeah. take it a little easier. Well, that's why I always tell people, you know, they'll, they'll ask, you know, they'll say, why don't you're going, you got this tag, just say Kansas or Iowa or wherever, because I'm headed to Kansas right. this year. And they would ask, why don't you go somewhere where you have a, a better chance of maybe, you know, seeing more deer, right? Like cause go to an outfit or, or whatever right. the case is. Right. And my response is always right. to them. Look, if that's what someone wants to do, I, like, and that's what they like to do. Like, I hope that they go do that. You know, I'm all for people Absolutely. doing what right. they want to do. Right. I was like, but for right. me, I was like that type of hunt for me, there's a time and a place for it. Whenever my body won't allow me to do the things that I want to do anymore. I was like, but That's good, while my body is willing and my mind is, or my mind is willing and my body is able, I want to do the hardest right. hunts that I can to get those experiences yeah. while I can, because you can only do those, but for a certain time of your life. And exactly. And I don't want to yep. give the, I don't want to give those up too early is the point. Well, most people, you know, we, most of the standard we're taught to, you know, work the factory till you're 62 and retire and then go and do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's one of the greatest myths perpetuated on the American society is retirement. Well, yeah. by the time you get 62, if you ain't done it, you're not going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, that's a great, so I, I tell everybody get started when you're young, make it happen. Just climb it a step at a time. If you start when you're 18 on just your first little out-of-state whitetail hunt, by the time you're 28, 10 years later, you're going to be hitting the mountains out wet. It's a natural progression, and if you if you don't go down that road, then you you didn't have it to begin with, and you'll find something else you like. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that's interesting, I want to I want to shift gears here real quick because you know, yeah, we've been talking about you know your, your, your passion for the, for that grind hunt and stuff like that. And, and a lot right. of people know you, you know, you know, and know your success and know that you've killed, you know, big deer and elk and Western game and all this stuff throughout your career. But what they probably don't realize is what it took to become as consistent as you are, you know, and that, and that, and that you've been right. And they only right. see those right. you for those successes. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how much failure lies behind those, that consistent success that people know you for? Well, I, this almost gets to a point that I don't go there, which is, I'm afraid for me to describe it truthfully 
it may sound not realistic and it may sound arrogant. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have an arrogant bone in my body, but after the first year or two out West, and then after I first finally hit a certain point around age 29 or 30, somewhere right in there on Whitetail. I mean, it took me a long time on Whitetail to get out of the, um, the, uh, dumb stage if you want to call it that i mean i just was not getting it on whitetail i finally matured on it and out west after that first year i'm going to say that for the past 30 years out west like especially on elk trips i don't know that i've made three or four that i didn't kill elk Hmm. Um, my success has averaged 95 or 98 percent for 30 years you know what i mean and i mean from Montana to Arizona, I just, once I figured elk out, I know how they live. Once I know how they live, I, I don't have a problem with elk. I'm going to, if I go to the elk woods, something's going belly up. Uh, <laughs> I just, I I just I'm going to kill, I'm going to kill their hides. I mean, I am so dominant on elk that it ain't even a question. Um, because I know exactly what's on their mind. I know every moment of the day what they're thinking and what they're fixing to do and you you know being a woodsman you got them then you just got to play the train and everything else you know to your uh benefit and you ought to be in their face all the time you know and you got to look there's no way i could i could write a book on all what i know about elk and how to hunt them and stuff but really it wouldn't do a guy good he's got to get out there and learn it like we will like i did and like you are do it yourself and then you're going to hit a point and it's all going your success is just not i never had a problem even worrying about killing elk every year i went um it was always how large a one i wanted to get does that make Mm -hmm. sense yeah yeah totally makes sense you know because you got to have a challenge and when you finally reach a bar you always move the bar up you don't Mm -hmm. and that's one problem with me now i've i've reached a high of bars i'm ever going to reach with elk i i've killed like I don't know, mid thirties, mature bulls, something mm-hmm. like that. And it only, I haven't reached 400 inches, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> real close three nineties and junk and stuff. I don't have any more goals on elk, you know, and right. whitetail wise, I've been realistic. I've not, you know, been able to run with the really top end big dogs, like the, the guys, like the, uh, the Gurry type people and the, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, Higgins and some of these guys that there's a level of whitetail out there that, the average Joe, like you or I, are never going to see because mm-hmm. it's more of a it's more of a business and a money game when you get to that point. Right. Um, you've got to custom hand build the top end whitetail level. You can't get that level of whitetail being a do it yourself blue collar guy. Does that make sense? No, it t- it totally ma- it totally makes sense. You know, there's there's a. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to degrade it. No, but there I, is a level out there. That- you know yeah i mean the thing is is like the, that caliber of deer in 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 public places are just they're they're it's they're tough. phantoms like they're few and far between yeah, not saying that they don't they don't exist but man trying to find right. one in those places is is like a needle in a haystack you know they're they're a needle in it a is. haystack might, any anyway just in general and then magnify that by right. the time you know the the magnitude of however much pressure they're getting on public land and you know just you know, how many are getting killed deer are getting killed in general on exactly. public land right you're not you're not manicuring or manufacturing you know the the herd so, right. to, so to speak you know what was you know yeah. what was your you mentioned you know elk was something that you just like it just clicked and made sense 
What about right, what right. was the thing for whitetails? Like, I guess, you know, give me a sense of, do you remember a specific kind of watershed moment for whitetail hunting where, you know, where things just all of a sudden clicked and made sense? And it was like, okay, I got it. I understand yeah. it now. It was a watershed season. It was a three month grind. It was 1988. And I had been at it progressing a little bit more each year. I was still in the infancy stages. I'd killed deer, nothing real big. But I finally got access to a quality piece of property here in my home state that was big enough for me to go in there and just hunt them all day long, every single day, and not have to worry about them being run amok. I became a deer observer. And I went in there, and I hunted between October 1 and December 31, which was our bow season. Mm-hmm. I hunted every day out of those three months except three three days out of those three months i i was not there hmm. and out of the days i was there 60 some of them i was there from daylight to dark okay i got through that year with deer on the brain i <laughs> i watched deer do everything deer do I learned more about whitetail deer in that season in those thousands of hours I stood out there. Um, I, I, I just had a massive cram course on their behavior and how they function. And I just come to some realizations that season of what had to be done, you know, through the different stages of October, November, and December, how they lived their life, how they utilized their habitat, how their behavioral characteristics, everything from does to button bucks to two-and-a-half-year-old bucks to the big mature bucks, I mean, I watched them, I learned them. And after that season, then I fell into it like, you know, a, a duck in water. I just then, – then all I had to do was start branching out and going to where I could hunt big deer then. Right. And, you know, I started going out of state. I, I, back in that day, I had a, about a three- or four-year run in eastern Colorado that was incredible. I, I went out there. That was one of the first places I traveled to back in the late 80s was in eastern Colorado. I was driving through it every year to go up there and go hunting, and I had become aware there were whitetails in eastern Colorado. I went out there, and for three or four years, I had seasons that would rival anything anybody could do with money. I mean, I was seeing one to four Boone and Crockett plus bucks every year. Wow. I mean— You, I mean, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's good. I don't care where you're at. That's that's good. I mean, is there? Yeah. What what was the hardest thing for you to like? Is there one thing that you could point to that was the hardest thing for you to learn about whitetails that that let you start to get consistent on them? Because for me, I'll give you a for example. For me, right. things started making a lot more sense to me once I had once I was able to start once I was able to stop thinking about what my wind and thermals were going to do that I could just get to a spot and I could understand what my prevailing was and what the thermals were going to do as the day, as the day changed, you know, whether it was morning into, you know, afternoon or afternoon right. into evening. Once I understood how to give the deer the wind and I understood what yeah. my thermals were going to do and how to play those, everything started right. making a lot more sense for me. It became yeah. not easy. I don't want to say, but it became, I knew how to hunt areas when I got to them. I didn't have to think about it anymore. Is there anything like that for you that was that was more challenging to pick up and learn that once you kind of got it, it was kind of the nail in the coffin, so to speak? Well, 
I'm sure, and I think back about picking up, you know, all I learned so much about the thermal and all I was all just going to say, I well, elk hunting, yeah. Yeah, out west, you absolutely live and die by thermals out west in the mountains. So I already had that down before I got good at whitetail. The thing that really, and you know, I'm weird here because I'm not saying that what I did for all these years on whitetails was the best approach to kill the biggest bucks, but it it was what I fell into. It's what I did, and it's feathered my nest well. Um, I haven't killed 200-inch deer. You know, I've killed absolute dump truck load of book bucks and lots of my best bucks are up in the upper 180s. You know what I'm saying? Right. But what I learned was this, how to hunt them during the peak of the rut. Um, I knew that I was probably never in my lifetime going to have a place that was unbothered. I was going to either be hunting public land or somewhere that is a freak show. So I was not going to be able to set up these hunts like we see on the TV shows where, you know, you've got this big acreage and you, you get all everything and you can go in there and you know their pattern. And I, I knew that was never going to be me. So I decided I was going to have to learn to hunt them during the only time the big ones are at their weakest moment during that helter skelter time when they're breeding and they're out of their mind mm-hmm. and they're staggering around doing dumb stuff. So what I learned from watching them way back there, and it took me quite a few years, even after I learned this, to start putting it in practice, because you just can't stick your neck out far enough to go for this, is how those big ones, the ones that you don't rarely ever see, you don't even know they're around, the vapors, those giants, how that every time after year after year they showed up, it was always in the most off-the-wall place. An off-the-wall time is never in the standard place in the standard time. And so when I finally got a grip on that and started going out of the normal on my places and times, I started killing my biggest bucks. Hmm. Now, it's more like the place you said before because you're stepping out into a place there where you're not going to see very many deer very often. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. You've got to get away from that willingness to – most everybody wants to hunt where all the hot sign is and where the freak show is going on. Well, that's fine. You're going to have a lot of fun down there, and you're probably going to kill 140s. You know what I mean? Right. Um, Yeah. I killed the bigger ones out in the far reaches of their fringe habitat, out there where nobody hunts, where they actually – spend most of their time does mm-hmm. that make sense yeah no it totally makes sense i mean i'm just curious can you give me because i'm trying to envision this is there uh-huh. is there an uh-huh. example or is there a strategy that you've used it, maybe it's not even that it's been consistent but it's like maybe there's a strategy that uh-huh. you're remembering that work can you just give me an example of of one of these kind of setups you know what the scenario was yeah. time of year things like that just so i can kind of wrap my head around what you're because i totally agree with you and i've heard this i think folks have kind of you know had have kind of know this in the back of their mind. Right. But it's a really, really right. hard habit to break, to get off all that sign and, yeah. you know, and move yeah. to an area where you, you take a look around and you, and you look at it and you say, it doesn't look like a deer would ever live here, but that's where the, yeah. Right. Yep. So give me an example, I guess, <laughs> of like a hunt where it all played out like that or mm-hmm. like a tactic that you use right. to, to, to get it done. Well, I'll give you a good one, and this is probably one of the oldest whitetail bucks I've ever killed. He was way past his prime. He was an ancient old monarch, prairie prairie deer out of Kansas. I was hunting in a section, a, a literal, you know, square mile section, 
of prairie that didn't have 15 acres of cover in the whole square mile. And it was patchy, it was stringer, it was brush. And I had, on the next section over is Big Creek Bottom. That's where all the signs at. That's where all the deer were at. Uh, you could go down there and just froth it to bit. That's where 99 out of 100 guys wanted to go hunt. Well, I had kind of started seeing and learning, caught some crossing the road at night and different things coming out of that prairie. And I was like, something, I got to get this going. So I go out there. I'm, I, I took a day and beat that down. And I learned that there were swags, I call them, uh, uh, gentle gullies out in there that you didn't even know were out there that had little brush patches and different things. And I found one that had about three cottonwood trees in it, about 100 yards apart up and down it, wide open country. You could see the horizon for 360 degrees around you, just blue stem prairie. And in there, in that one swag, was a big old honking signpost rub. And I said, okay, that's what I thought. And that's, that's all I need to know. So I put me a stand in this cottonwood. And I'm telling you, if I didn't ever feel like one of the dumbest, I mean, <laughs> if you saw where this was at, you would have a problem believing it. I still, I mean, it's unbelievable. You wouldn't think white-tailed deer were even out there. And there weren't hardly any out there. And there weren't really very many does at all around anywhere. But see, it was just this one great big one. And I knew he was there because his rub's right here in front of me. I sat there for three days from dark in the morning till dark in the evening. And I caught glimpses of three or four different deer at a distance during that time. And I was just about at my wit's end. I was just, I, every day I was getting more convinced I was a Looney Tune. <laughs> and it was November, November the 18th, I'll not forget it. The third day, the fourth day I said, it was my birthday, November the 18th. So it's right in the middle of breeding season. And since then I've kind of learned, you may have heard of breeding hideouts breeding sanctuaries mm -hmm. yep. well i was evidently in that big bucks little hidey hole out there in the prairie and sure enough right at dusk on that fourth day and i, I really believe it's gonna be my last day sitting out there i don't think i could have took it any longer <laughs> right in the evening i seen a doe coming um, across the prairie and then right behind her was that giant they come over that prairie for a mile and come over in there and dropped into that little swag i was in and ended up he ended up right at the end of shooting light where I could shoot him and kill him. And he was uh, as old as any white-tailed buck can get and live in the wild. He had virtually no teeth left in his head. He was just an ancient, monstrous old monarch. Now, his antlers probably had been bigger at some point in his life, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, he still grossed around 170 as an old downhill buck. Right. And, uh, no. you know, I just went out there and put in the dues that, you know, I don't think very many guys would enjoy that hunt at all. And I don't advise them to do it because it's not fun. Um, <laughs> it's mentally draining. Uh, but, boy, I mean, if you're after just a big one, what I've learned in the open country is get out there in the fringe stuff. I mean, when I used to hunt the Flint Hills area, which I just finally now, finally actually this year, got me a piece of land finally, first piece I've ever owned in my life, and I bought it up there in the prairie of Kansas. And uh, you know, I can go down to my big creek bottom and it's just lined with scrapes and rubs and all the deer and the sign and you just have a ball down there hunting and pretty soon you've run them all off. You know, you're hunting right in their living right. room and uh, I don't even go down there much anymore. I just set out on the, I call it the spokes of the Ferris wheel. I set out on the far spokes and 
I let them come to me. I leave them alone in their core areas and don't educate them and don't relocate them. And I let my local deer be local deer. I don't move them. Hmm. And then sure enough, during that peak time in November, if I sit there and put my dues in, some old big old gomer is going to come staggering across the prairie and walk down my fence line. Because I, I sit out in hedgerows and fence lines that people don't even look at when they drive by. So when the, when you saw those deer off in the distance kind of moving, right? Uh, did you? Yep. Yes. Did you think about getting down and, and, and trying to make a move closer? And I guess, I guess the question I'm asking is, do you, do you hunt aggressively or do you, do you think that you're more of a patient hunter and let the hunt come to you? White tail, white, it, this is weird. Cause I'm one of the most aggressive Western hunters. I think they've ever hit the ground out there. Hmm. I just, I've often made the statement. I try to run them down with a pair of tennis shoes and a pocket knife and kill elk. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm crazy aggressive. I'm, I'm out of my mind aggressive out west, but whitetail wise, um, you know, I grew up a tree stand hunter and I'm probably absolutely stupidly uh, unaggressive. I have killed them off the ground. And funny you mentioned that because that buck story I just told you about, they finally ended up right there in front of me at dark and I shot the buck. It's weird because you, you, you hit a point that I didn't think I had time to mention, but I will. When, when I first seen him with her out there, he had her at about 150, 200 yards, and I felt I could crawl up on him and get a shot at him. I actually let my bow down out of the tree on my rope, climbed down, got my bow, and started to sneak over there and put a maneuver on him, chickened out of it, and got went back and climbed back up the tree and set another hour till dark and finally got him over there by me. Uh, I actually called his doe over to me with blights, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, here's the way I, I, if I think I can get down and kill them, I'll, I'll get down and crawl down a ditch. I, I mean, I have, I've crawled down ditches up in Illinois, you know, um, irrigation ditches, uh, with one side of me in the water, you know, belly crawling to get up on something. I'll hunt aggressively for whitetails if I think it's the thing to do, but I've just always kind of been patient and let them come to me basically. Right. Now, how, what would you say your percentage hunts are from a stand versus from, from the ground? Cause it's, it's, you know, for me headed out there this year, I'm anticipating mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing a lot of ground hunting, but I also right. listened, I also listened to you, you know, and I've listened to you talk uh-huh. about it at different times. And I know that you like to hunt out of elevated sets a lot. Yeah. And so well, I just, I'm just curious of what your breakdown kind of is. If I was you and it was my first year and I'm going to Kansas, I'm going to the open country and I'm wanting to try to learn a walk-in or a public place or something. Um, the problem that I've run into is if you go there during prime time, there's going to be so many people hunting publics and walk-ins that you don't feel like you can get out and walk around in. You're going to be walking by people and goofing up their hunts. You know what I'm saying? Right. But so anyway, what I would do is go, I'd carry my little uh, very, I'm, I make a little homemade little three-pound portable stand I can strap on my back and a couple of, you know, lightweight, easy climb steps and things. Carry them on your back with you. Carry your stuff that if you're, but I would still hunt off the, or not still hunt, but hunt aggressively off the ground in a scout sort of mission. And what you're going to do is you're going to do that for a while. And then you're going to see and learn some things. And all of a sudden the light bulb will come on and you'll know what to do next. Um, You need to go through your habitat, see how the deer are there, see, learn what's going on. And then, you know, if maybe you see a, like, I have found some pinch points that the minute I seen these things, I was like, oh, God. Hmm. And I was like, holy crap. 
this is a no-brainer of the universe, right? right? And I mean, all you need to—I actually did it in Eastern Colorado. I scout hunted all day down the side of the Arkansas River, waded the river, and scout hunted back up the other side the second half of the day. And at one—no, it's three o'clock in the evening. I walked into one of them pinch points that the minute I walked into it, looked around me, the hair stood up on the back of my neck and I didn't have no tree stand. I was like, I'll be back tomorrow. But it was like two and a half hours of daylight. I looked over there and found a cottonwood tree, hugged it, climbed it, stood on a limb. I mean, literally no tree stand, nothing stood on a limb, leaned back against the tree, said, I can do this for two and a half hours till dark. 30 minutes later, killed a 170 typical <laughs> oh man i love that that's like that's probably like one of my favorite hunting stories now like just climbing well, a tree, I'm telling just you, de- I mean, dealing with what you got yeah. you know well when you see these spots if you if you if you got outdoorsmanship you know you could walk into certain things i mean if you scouted the square mile in ohio for white tails or you scouted uh eastern colorado river bottom for a day you're going to figure out what you need to be doing and you'll do it. And, you know, just be prepared for anything, whether it be building a ground blind, whether it be built, you know, throwing up a quick tree stand um, in five minutes, maybe, you know, real quiet. Like that day right there, if I'd have just hiked out and got my tree stand out of the truck and come back, I could have been back in an hour and I wouldn't have killed that deer. Um, I knew, I mean, I'd have to describe this pinch point to you. It's, it's, it had a trail beat down in it with four finger tracks going both directions. It had a set of rubs coming through it from both directions, the size of your knee. I was like, I never seen anything like this in my life. This is an absolute no brainer. So I climbed a tree and the first deer that come through it was a giant typical buck. Hmm. And so, I mean, you just got to um, make calls, most of which aren't, you know, if you're a bow hunter, you know that 50% of the calls you make or maybe 90% of them aren't right. But that one or that one or two or three out of 10 that you do make right are the ones that are extremely satisfying, you know? Right. Now how much, you know, how much calling, not, you know, calls as far Uh as decisions, but I know you called that doe into you that brought that buck in whenever you were out in that swag, right? Right. How often are you, how are you using calls? Like, is it something that you have found, you know, hunting that open country that, works pretty well rattling works does it work well you know does grunting like what is your kind of take on 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 calling in general and how often do you use it i've hunted all over kansas extensively and in that prairie country those bucks travel long distances and they're fairly uneducated they have enormous acreages they've got 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 thousand acre areas to live in up there those giant ranches Mm -hmm. and all they are is cattle ranches they're not hunted much those deer are not super educated deer like you guys got back east right you can call them you can call them till the cows come home up there i live and die by calling up there in that prairie i can sit out in a lone cottonwood in a square mile out in the middle of it and if i see a buck over there that i think can even hear my rattling at he might be a half a mile. If he, if I think he can hear me, I believe I can call him up there and shoot him with my bow. Hmm. So pretty, con- pretty now confident this, in calling this, out there. 
Absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't think I need to say this, but I mean, that's during that peak rut time, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Right. Got, got I'm not that. talking about October, December necessarily. I mean, when they're on the prowl, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would be the peak time? Mature... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Peak. Well, I was just going to say, when you catch a mature deer by himself crossing the prairie or anywhere, if you can't call that deer in, you need to take up golf because that guy is looking for action you know what i'm saying no, i mean I, i'm I not know what you're saying. yeah i mean a mature buck should be with a hot doe almost all the way from about november the 15th through the latter part of the month he should be breeding if you catch him between hot does you know what i'm saying he'll mm-hmm. come to a call but that time is usually to me i usually start calling him in pretty effectively with grunt calls and different type Things like that, tickling antlers, you know, like sparring bucks starting yeah. around November 1. But about the 10th of November is when it really starts changing, when when uh, they start getting psycho and mm-hmm. there's probably some of the does coming in, you know. Mm-hmm. Is uh, there is there a time frame or if you had to pick a day or, a two, or like mm-hmm. a three-day window to hunt Kansas, what would you – what would your suggestion be? Or what is your preferred – what, what are your preferred dates, I guess? First thing, I'd have to ask this question: What is your goals in the way of a buck? Uh, I want to kill a I want to kill a good deer. I don't need to kill a giant, uh, but I'd like okay, to, I'd like to kill something in, in the one in the one forties and up. Okay, the best time to do that would probably be the first through the tenth. Okay, they're still at their home. They're up a lot. They're aggressive, but they haven't took off yet. They haven't left their home. You know okay. what I mean? Yep. Now, Get about, out there. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. Now, what if what if uh, what if someone wanted to kill a giant? What would your time frame be? Absolutely, positively, Thanksgiving. Hmm. You got to wait till they're out of their mind. If you don't have a setup, like if you're a Joe Blow and you own a square mile and your deer are there and it's you it's different ball game but if you're hunting like you and i do you've got to wait till those big ones have been breeding they will finally break their standards down and they'll start doing dumb stuff they come out of the woodwork around thanksgiving they come out of the woodwork okay that's interesting that's it's pretty consistent with some stuff like i think uh my buddy was talking to, I know, you know, uh, I believe, you know, Jared Scheffler, um, he was talking yeah. to him just about yeah, hunt, hunting Kansas and stuff. Right. And he was saying, he was pretty consistent with what you said. I think he said like somewhere between like the eighth and the 10th has always been kind of, he basically said, don't miss yep. the eight through the 10th. He's like, do whatever you can do right. to be there those three days. He, you know, the those would be my, yeah, if I had to pick three, I wouldn't go back toward the first through the 10th. I'd go toward the 10th, 9th, 8th. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yep. and I'm curious, you know, I know you, you, you scout a lot, but I'm, I'm just curious what your, <laughs> your scout to hunt ratio is, even when you're traveling out of state, like, is it 50, 50, or do you scout two days for every one day you're going to hunt? Like, what does that kind of, what does that kind of look like? Well, that's a good one. Cause I've tried it every different direction. And of course, a lot of it depends on, there's so many variables, but I think overall, I've always been a guy that wanted to put his feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. I just believe that if I can scout the area that I'm going to hunt, I believe I can figure out what to do and get the job done. Now I've killed them without the scouting. 
I usually hunt my way in, I call it. I start mm-hmm. out at the edges in the first decent-looking spot I find, and usually a day or two, I'm ready to move in. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, um, you know, now this, you know, it depends on the habitat. If you're in giant northern woods, you can throw all this out the window. But farm country and broken country with open and woodlots and things, you know, hunt your way in if you're not going to go put your feet. I, I'm going to go to a place. I almost, I don't care when it is. I'm going in there the first day, and I'm packing a lunch. And I am going to walk 10 or 12 miles inside a square mile. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm going to learn every square inch of that mile I'm hunting. I want to have a picture in my brain of the, you know, I'm going to learn where the two or three hot spots are. In other words, you're going to find two or three spots here or there that are going to be covered up with rubs and scrapes and trails and droppings and deer and blah, blah, blah. Then I'm going to step back and put it in perspective to how those big bucks, when they go, see, they're going to go to those spots at night. I'm going to figure out how they're going to travel, what route they're going to travel between those three spots. Connect the dots. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a fact. They're going to go down there at night and pick them up a hot doe, and then they're going to take her back out away from the action. They, Them big bucks don't tolerate you know, a breeding doe down there around all that because every big buck that comes by, there's going to be a big fight. It's ugly. It don't work. Then big bucks will run them out in the pasture and get them away from everybody. But I, I want to hunt them on the, on the in-between spots, between the hot spots. Because if I'm going to hunt a hot spot, I better have about three or four of them because I'm going to goof them up pretty quickly. You know, you go right. sit right in a core area all day, you goof it all up, right? Yeah, and it kind of ties back to what you were saying before, how you kind of hunt the spokes. Right, but uh, yeah. rather than right. hunting the 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 hub, if you look at it like a Ferris hub. wheel or right. or whatever, yep. that totally makes sense because exactly what you're saying, they're going to lay down a lot of that sign at night, and they're going to kind of swim through there and try to pick themselves out a hot a hot doe. And so, if you can kind of get away from that and understand, you might not get the big yep. buck that's pick, cutting out the hot doe like you did, where you know you had right. him pegged where he was going to take her to, to breed, right? But if you can get yourself right. in between a couple of those hot spots where you know they're going to be right. checking, you, you yeah. know, and just yeah. kind of play play that game. So with that, are you focusing more on the does or are you focusing on where the bucks are going to be? Because a lot of folks during that time frame will just, you know, they'll say, I'm hunting the does. Like wherever the does are at is where I want to be. But it sounds like you don't necessarily follow that logic. I stay totally away from the doe core areas. You can't do nothing but goof your deer up. If you sit in doe core areas, how can you do that without goofing them up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have no answer. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> you're going to you're going to run your does them up. You're going to scent the whole place down, coming and going, and say, unless you've got some way to snap your fingers and be there and be gone and not have no scent, you can't set in the core areas unless you better have six or eight core areas so you can hunt them on a rotational basis. You can booger a core area once, but you better not go back and do it two or three days in a row. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, You're going to move them. So I hunt out on on what I call travel corridors, Mm -hmm. travel corridors, where those bucks are getting from point A over here in this creek drainage. They're coming over and they're checking this other creek drainage over here. And sometimes they may be checking the same creek drainage a mile apart. But they're not going to walk right down the side of that creek a mile to get down there. They'll go out in the prairie, hit a hedgerow, 
that's in a swag and walk down it and then jump back over the creek. Them big old timers know where the danger's at. It's down there in that cover. That's mm-hmm. where everybody's in danger. I mean, everybody gets hunted down there, and that's where all the people are goofing around, and they're in the cover. Right. So they live out away from, from it. And uh, now if you're wanting to kill these 140s, get down there, man. You know, jump in the cover, you know, rape and pillage, and a 140 will be by, and you'll fill your tag, and it's on to the next hurrah, you know. Right. But if you want to lay down a big one, the best ones around, the oldest bucks, you got to not hunt. Does this make sense? You got it, it, to not hunt normal, normal. Yeah. No, it, it, yeah, it's it's consistent with you know. There's a. It's funny because, you know, a couple fellows, including you, that I've talked to, you know, that mm-hmm. have killed good deer in their lives and continue to kill good deer. Right. The theme has kind of been, you know, hunting off the sign, like the significant sign that they're finding. Right. Whether it's you're right. doing it in prairie. Right. You've done it in a lot of different places, but we're talking, you know, open right. country right now. I've got another buddy right. who he hunts in uh, the Appalachian Mountains in, in Virginia and, and kills mm-hmm. giants there doing the same thing. Diff, diff, completely right. different setup, right. but same philosophy. Right. And so I think yeah. I think a lot of folks just get enamored with that big sign. And I'll count myself as, as part of that. I, I have a hard time breaking well, away from it still, you know, so oh, who don't man. I, yeah. There's nothing send a bow hunter's blood bull any more than a gigantic scrape or a gigantic rub you know yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean do you yeah. find is there a consistent kind of habitat in that in that open country that you find consistent action if you will right to hunt so whether it's yeah. like a ditch or a hedgerow or like a you know i'll, I'll give you an example some people you know here mm-hmm. in the east Maybe they got a field somewhere. They're going to put a mock scrape in, just as an example. They'll put that mock scrape out right. in, in the middle of a field, single like single tree that they've planted, or a single you know, uh, right, right, you know, uh, pole in the ground with a branch hanging off of it, because deer just seem uh-huh. to be attracted to that one single thing that seems to be out in the middle of nowhere. They want to check it out. They're right. curious. Do you find anything yeah. in that open country that always kind of pulls deer, like it has a gravity that just pulls deer to it? Well, now that, I'm not sure I feel that I've ever found any secret ingredient. That um, Now, I do know for the biggest, oldest bucks, what they, they like is take your drainage, go to the secondary drainage coming in from the side, and then go up it about a mile, and then go to your third drainage, which is the feeder drainage coming into it, and follow it up to the last thickets up in there. Does that make sense? Because yeah. when you get that far up there, you're right where they're laying during the day. That's where they bed. That's where they're going to be in the month of October. They'll be laying up there in the heads of them third-tier drainages, goofing around, getting up at dusk, and slowly starting to, you know, they're wanting to go down there bad, but they're not doing it yet. They might make it halfway down there, but they never start getting down. So that is the one thing is get get Google Look at the drainages, and as they start to go up and fork and branch off, if you're if you're wanting to go do something weird, now I, I've done this some in October, and I I am not like a really good bow shot. I'm not one of these guys that shoots way out there and does good. But I have crawled up on some of these big guys out there in October. I'll go to the heads of the big drainage where I can see two or three of these 
second and third drainages ending out in the prairie, and I'll sit there and glass them in the evening. I've watched them get up out of thickets that were three or four foot wide, stand up. They just appear. They've been laying there all day, and they'll stand up. And I've went and made moves on them, and I've come real close to getting one of the big suckers killed off the ground in October. But I usually just end up getting within 60, 70 yards of them and not getting a shot. Does that make sense? No, you know? that, that makes sense. Uh, Does, did the, would those places also act as – or could they act as that kind of breeding sanctuary you were talking about before since they're so kind of remote and maybe away from where all that, all that big sign would be laid oh, down? I, Oh, I know they are because I've yeah. watched them back out there with a doe later. If you, I've actually went and built a ground blind in some of them little thickets out there and sat and tried to wait. I've watched them come out there. It's getting them in the general area is not always a problem, but it's getting them close enough to get them bow shot in because you're not. This is so open that you really don't have a lot of room most of the time to do much maneuvering. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and even if you get them in the next gully over from you, you crawl up there and peer over, and they're standing down there seventy yards or something. And you just, it's a, it's a very fickle thing. Um, I would rather do this though at my stage of hunting than being down there in the big creek bottom where all the real deer actions going on, where the one forties are running around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of years having a lot of fun with a lot of deer, and I've just got to where now that ain't my priority. I would rather go out there where I got peace and quiet, and and there's not much going on out there. There's not going to be people bothering me, and I'm going to see a big one ever so often, and I'm I'm, I'm happy with that. But what I do is not for the early stage bow hunter. It'll drive you insane. You need to dive in down there and and kill the good bucks and be happy, and then one day you'll get to where you'll start getting away from that you know right right the uh what's what i find really interesting is that you know i I know that you like to hunt that that pre-rut time frame and 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 stuff like that i was um talking to i know a a fellow that you know you that you know as well tony peterson and we were just kind of talking about these traveling and stuff like that and it it cracks me up because i asked him i was like when would you go you know when would you go to kansas and i knew what he was gonna say because it was the uh-huh. exact opposite of me, and it's the exact opposite of you, I think. Uh, and he said, you know, right, I would go right. in October when I don't have October. anybody out there. He's like, I'm going to glass, right. figure out what the pattern is, and I'm going to move in on them. And I just yeah. have a hard time. I need him to be dumb. I'm not at a point yet where I can yeah. – <laughs> I need him to be part no, stupid I, for me I, to have I, a chance. I got to tell you right up front what Tony does. Um, I've got just a deep level of respect for it. I, I – uh, I've delved into it a little bit over the years, but I don't stay hooked because I put so much time and so much effort into the month of November that I just don't have it in me anymore to do it that hard and that long in October too. I just, I will, I'll burn out. I just think I can't put two months of that in anymore. So I'm going to do the November thing in the rut when they're dumb, but I totally agree with his. I mean, there is a very viable argument with his line of thinking of getting there. Um, There's, positives about being there in october especially from october the 15th through about october the 30th when those guys are getting up earlier and and giving you something to go on you can spot them and see a little bit about what they're doing then you know mm-hmm. uh, yeah you know it, it's an inter- if the guy's got unlimited time he could if he went out there and did that the last two weeks of october he would be so prepared that by the time the november rut come along it would be um just a matter of what were you going to kill do you know what i mean yeah yeah and that was kind of what i what i had said to him was i feel like kansas would would be one of the places that i would maybe feel comfortable doing that only because 
there would be less people. I could do a lot of glassing and maybe find one bedded. And he's going to probably do the same thing day over day at that point in mid October. Cause he said he was saying yeah. like second week ish of October, you know, middle yeah. of October. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, if you could find one, you know, and you could bet him, you could, you could have a chance, you know, because you know yeah, what he's going to do. He, you know yeah. where he's probably going right. to feed based on where he's bedded and you can just kind of watch him and know, and, and you could make a move and try to intercept him. Like it totally makes sense. I was like, I just don't know that I have the confidence yet to try to pull something like that off. <laughs> well, you, you want to hunt them all the ways you can hunt them, but doing it is a different thing. How much time can a guy supply? I mean, he's got a life, you know, I mean, yeah. you can't just go crazy and spend two months in Kansas in a sense, trying to kill one deer. Maybe right. um, you, you've got to pick your two week window and go get the job done and move on in life. I mean, I'm pretty blessed. I live here close to Kansas. I have unlimited time and yet I haven't really put the dues in to do what he's doing. I did it enough to see that it's there. That resource is real. And mm-hmm. I admire him for getting out there and, and bringing it to fruition with some dead deer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, he does it, whether it's Nebraska or whatever, that's usually when he right, likes to go is, right. that, is that early season, yep. you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I need, I need some pointers from him. Maybe is what I need. I'm getting some pointers from you now. Maybe I need some pointers from him too. We'll, we'll maybe, maybe between the <laughs> well, two, maybe between the two, you, you'll help me feel, a, I'll, I'll get a tag filled maybe, <laughs> but well, uh, you, you'll get some pointers. All right. They'll, they'll, they'll get you on some wild goose chase you listen to me i'll tell you <laughs> well hey i would chase <laughs> no, i would chase geese with you any day of the week eddie that's that's for sure man so but hey well, i want to be I, I want to be respectful mm-hmm. of your time i have one last question sure. for you here before i before okay. i let you go this is the all hardest right. one i'm going to ask you all night all right so okay all right and it's not even really about deer hunting if you had to pick okay if you had to make a basketball team of just three players right for a three-on-three tournament basketball tournament made up of the best archery deer hunters that you know who would those three be well and they wouldn't they don't, don't have to be you don't have, they don't have to be alive they can you know they, they don't need to be with us any longer and you don't even need to personally know them well i, I don't know any of these top end bow hunters in the industry um i'm i'm a square peg they don't the industry and i don't i don't deal with them uh, they don't really like me. I'm kind of a, I've been branded a bit of a stuck up, but it's just because I'm a loner. Does that make sense? No, yeah, um, it makes sense. I don't, I, I, I'm sure there's guys in the industry that are some of the best deer hunters on the earth, but I don't know them. I'd have to pick guys that I know people would have never heard of them. Is that, is yeah, that that's perfect. Doing good? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just a, a few of the guys that I have grown up around um, that have went with me for 10 or 20 years and I've watched them. Because, I, you know, this sounds ugly, but I don't keep track of other people. I don't care. What, I'm selfish, I guess. I guess I just grew up that way and don't even know it. I just do what I do, and I don't really care what anybody else is doing. Does that make sense? I want everybody yeah. else to go have fun and, and mind their own business and leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are, we are, I mean, we are birds of a feather. Why, hey, it takes all kinds, and I'm just the kind of a I'm I've entertained myself like when I told you I played with myself. I mean, right. um, I, I mean, I, I, I've, I've entertained myself my whole life. I don't know anything else. I'm not comfortable around people. I I don't even people. Oh God, forgive me. I know I'm getting old. I'm probably going to need people for the rest of my life, and ain't going to have anybody around. But anyway, 
I don't know anybody else that well to say how good of bow hunters they are. I don't hunt. The greatest bow hunter I know of right now is my friend Travis. I met him when he was about 20, and he and I started hunting together, and that boy took to it like a duck to water. And I'm telling you right up front, buddy, if you want somebody that can go to public land and figure things out and get the job done, Travis is the man. He even mystifies me uh, on straight up public because that's just basically all he hunts anymore for many years has been straight up public. And I mean, when you're talking about like down here and in Kansas, in my home state, Oklahoma and Kansas, he's going out each year and averaging two good 150-ish type bucks every year wow. off public land. Wow. Well, there you go. That's maybe, hard maybe, to say. maybe maybe you're just maybe you're just doing a one-on-one tournament. Maybe we don't even need three. Well, How's that? I'm telling you, that boy, you know, he was a blank slate at first. He had barely started, and I don't know, but he picked up a lot of things. And buddy, did he run with them? And that's what you got to have because, you know, what I do is of no use to anybody if they don't take it and run with it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. That's the that's the thing. You know, it's like I always tell, you know, my my bow hunting mentor is this, uh, uh-huh. I've had him on the podcast before people that listen to the show have heard me talk about sure. him before, but so I won't make this long, but uh-huh. his name's Tate and he's sure. a, he's a friend of my father-in-law's and I didn't start bow hunting okay. until I was, until I was 30. I grew up hunting, but I didn't start bow hunting until I was 30 because it wasn't something that anyone around me ever did. I just didn't right. really know much about it. Right. Um, and then I, right. he introduced me to it whenever I was, when I had turned 30 and, uh, it was just one of those things. Like the first time I did it, I was like, this is all I ever want to do, you know? And he's the same and he's the same way where it's like, he's like, I just sprinkled. He's like, I planted a little seed and gave it a little water. He's like, and then you just kind of freaked out, you know? He was like, and that was, (laughs) and that was it, you know? And uh, so I totally get it, you know? And that's, and to me, that's really kind of, you know, I think the, you know, the part of the beauty of, of bow hunting is that, it is a smaller group and we have a lot in common, even if we don't talk to each other a lot, you know, where we have an appreciation for someone somewhere planted a seed. And if you really, really love it, it was on you to figure it out. And that, and that, and that part to me is really cool. Yep. And that, that's what I got to do for the remaining days with me. Cause I've been real selfish about running and doing my own thing and staying out of everybody's sight and smell and, I got to plant some seeds in the next few years, whatever I got left. And then, you know, if only one of them grows into a dedicated bow hunter, then that'll be a legacy I leave behind. I didn't have a son. So, you know, Travis is my, I call him my homeboy, you know, and there I'm you telling go. you that guy, he's a, he's a, he's hell on wheels with this public land <laughs> white tail killing. He just, he can go into a place and he's been to many of them and just within time, He's going to be sitting there with a big one walking by, you know? Right. That's awesome. Well, anyway, I'll be respectful of your time, Eddie. I appreciate you. And, uh, I look forward to following what you're doing this year. And then hopefully, uh, hopefully this wasn't too bad and you'll be willing to come back on again sometime. Oh, absolutely. Hit me up someday and we'll compare notes and God bless and take care. I, I wish you the very best. And if you're in Kansas in November, give me a call and we'll touch base. We might be around the same general area and we'll meet up. Sounds good. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. 
Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.